welcome to the Cabramatta Vineyard Church podcast. We are a missional community in southwestern Sydney that desires to be a preview community of God's generous rule and reign. For more information, check out cabramattavineyard.org.au. Western Turkey. 
Now, in biblical times, this was the Roman province of Asia. Um, and the three largest city in, cities in Asia was Ephesus, the capital, uh, Smyrna, the one that you can see just to the north of Ephesus, and um, even further north, the city of Pergamon. So they were the three biggest cities in Asia. And you can see there the way in which they are connected. Now, if you read chapters 2 and 3, um, the order in which the letters are presented are the orders in which a travelling prophetic person st would start at Ephesus. It's the biggest city. It's the capital. Head north along the highway to Smyrna. Then travel uh, along the coast and over some mountains to Pergamon. And then uh, on another main highway down to Thyatira. And then further down to Sardis and Philadelphia. You may represent Philadelphia. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Um, there is a Philadelphia in the US, no doubt named from this passage. So philos means love or affection. Adelphos means brother. And then down in the southwest, almost due west from Ephesus, the city of Laodicea. Um, can we go down a slide, please, Alicia? What we can't see on that map, and we still can't see on this one because it's so darn small. Um, so I'll go over and point them out to you. Um, is that these are not the only churches in Asia. In fact, if you look here, you'll see on either side of Laodicea in the Lycus Valley, so the river Lycus flows down here where it hits the coast of um, Miletus. Uh, Miletus was Ephesus's uh, port town. You might remember Paul meeting the uh, elders of the Ephesian church at Miletus on his way uh, to uh, Jerusalem, the last time he saw them. So here's Laodicea. Now on high cliffs across the valley, looking down upon uh, the city of Laodicea is the city of Hierapolis. We know there was a church there because that's one of the places where Paul's letter to the Colossians was meant to be um, uh, read. And then on the other side of Laodicea is the city of Colossae, uh, which they've spelled wrongly. Um, now, Colossae was only a small town. It's easily the, the least important place uh, that gets a Pauline letter. And that's because Paul writes to the church of Colossae because he's trying to resolve an issue for the slave Onesimus um, with his friend uh, Philemon. So Paul writes to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus and because Philemon goes to the city of Colossae, this unimportant little town gets recorded in the scriptures for all of history uh, because Paul wrote to it. Uh, pretty much all of Paul's other letters are written to really important Greek cities. Um, Laodicea was much more, much bigger and more important than Colossae, so was Hierapolis, and certainly the other churches. 
Now, as we enter this, you remember that at the end of chapter 1, it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now what we're going to do this morning is we're going to uh, have an overview of these two chapters, and then we're going to zero in on the first letter, which was the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Jesus walks among the seven lampstands. He walks with his people. And he's here with us today. And I've actually written, even though we're few in number and struggling. And this is the most people have <laughs> church um, all year. Yeah. So, welcome. Thank you for all coming on the same day. That's good. Um, you should bring up all the others and tell them to come on the same day too. They really like that. In his vision, each church has an angelos, right? Which means, a Greek word which just means messenger, but it's normally translated angel, and that's the way it's translated in most English versions. And my guess is, because this is apocalyptic writing, that that's its straightforward meaning. That just as in Daniel, we discover that uh, nations like Persia, and Israel have powerful angelic beings who are given oversight and protection of a particular nation. And as we find out in Hebrews 1, that we as God's people have angels who their role is to protect us and to minister to us. Um, that we shouldn't be surprised to discover that each expression of God's family, each little church, also has an angel assigned to minister to us and protect us. I have no trouble uh, believing that. However, the angels are God's business, not ours. The angels minister to us. It's not our job to try and figure out what our angel's name is or what he's doing. Right? It's not our job to try and make contact with our angel if God chooses to speak to us or appear to us through the angel, that's his business, he can do it. We don't get to say. Right? Our job is to listen, to obey, and to lie on the floor quaking, quaking in fear. <laughs> um, but it's interesting to discover that each of these churches has an angel and the prophecy is directed to the angel of the church. The other thing I want you to notice is that each of these letters is going to be read by all of the other churches. So even though this is a letter to the church uh, at Ephesus, the next one is the letter to the church at, the church at Smyrna and then to the church at Pergamon, all of the churches are going to read each other's mail. Uh, which tells us that there's a kind of unity and interconnectedness in the early church that uh, just back up a bit. We won't be that for a while. Um, there's a, an interconnectedness in the church that we no longer experience today. 
to our great loss. Right? Even on this block, there's another church, Slavic church. Never met anyone from that church. Don't know anyone who goes there. Don't know what they do. Right? Karamata, there's lots of little churches. Mostly each little church representing a single um, language or ethnic group. Um, although we do have the um, Jesus family, which is a fantastic multicultural church. Um, probably one of the best in the country. Um, a whole bunch of different nationalities worshipping together. We'll find out in chapter 7 that that's what the church is meant to look like. That's what we're going to look like in heaven, or at least when heaven comes down to be with the earth. And I believe that the church is meant to be like that here today. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hands, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are words straight from Jesus. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name uh, for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, you have abandoned your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this I have with you, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So in this first letter, we see a pattern that's repeated seven, seven times. The letter is first addressed to the angel of the church and we're given the location of the church. And then we're given a description of Jesus and the imagery of that description comes from the vision of Jesus that John had in chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. And so here, Jesus is the one who holds the seven uh, stars in his hand and walks among the, the golden lampstands. He is the one who is sovereign over the churches and holds the churches in his hands. So even though most of these communities are experiencing incredible pressure and danger from the all-pervasive power of Rome, Jesus wants them to know that their future, that their safety is in his hands, not in the hands of the Roman powers. He then goes on to give a commendation to each church, except Laodicea, which aren't doing anything right. Um, that's the last church. Um, so there's a commendation, a praise for some aspect of the church's life that they're doing well. Which, if you've trained to be a teacher or a parent, you know that when you're going to give criticism, first of all, you're meant to give some positive stuff first. Uh, before you uh, add the 
the negative stuff. Always, yeah, yeah, we always do that. Yeah. Put that down. Maybe, maybe not always. Jesus at least gives us a good pattern to follow. He says, I know your works. And then he goes on to talk about what's going well in the life of the church. But this is then followed by a rebuke, an admonition or a warning, uh, which usually starts, I have this against you. Now, there are a couple of churches. The church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia don't have anything criticised. Jesus doesn't have anything, any complaint against those two churches. But for both of those churches, well, for the church at Smyrna, he has a serious warning. And then the prophecy ends, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In other words, listen up, everyone. And because of the way that statement reads, I believe that we are meant to listen to all of the warnings and all of the promises. Right? That um, there could be elements of the life of the different churches that we need to be warned about. Now, back in the late 1980s, John Wimber uh, did a series of teaching called uh, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And this is a pretty good practice for us to follow. Usually in January of each time, I'll spend a bit of time um, trying to get away on my own and listen to what it is that the Holy Spirit might be saying for the year ahead. Um, and from time to time, I put that out to the other vineyard pastors and said, what is it that Jesus is saying to the churches? Because we shouldn't think that Jesus is talking just to us and not to our brothers and sisters. And often common themes will come through. And so this morning I wonder what it is that Jesus is saying to the churches. If you have ears, listen. And usually at the end, though sometimes these last two bits are flipped, is a promise to the one who overcomes, right? To the one who conquers. Now, the background to all of these letters is the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the power of Rome. Rome claimed to have brought peace to the whole world. And so one of the boasts of every emperor was that they were the peacemaker. They, the one who, they were the ones who had brought peace and prosperity to all of the world. But this was the peace of the Roman army. Um, although the Roman army, compared to the size of the empire, wasn't that big. And the reason for that was that Rome had um, a policy and a practice of co-opting the local leaders and getting them on side. 
Now, Rome had been a province for nearly 200 years by the time John wrote this letter. In fact, the city at Smyrna appealed to Rome for protection in 197 BC. So that's nearly 300 years earlier. Um, we'll find a bit more about that uh, next time. Rome was able to survive as a world, well, a Mediterranean world-dominating empire for a millennium because they governed through patronage. Right? They won over and ruled through the local elites who were rewarded generously for their loyalty or punished severely and removed uh, if they rebelled. The way they normally did this is that they would take the children of the local elites uh, to Rome. So essentially they're hostages, but in Rome they see the power and the glory and the, the seduction of this empire. And so when they, when they were sent back to their families, they'd been thoroughly indoctrinated and won over to Rome. And as a consequence, Rome was able to rule multiple kingdoms through the local people. So Rome didn't, generally didn't have to station a garrison there because the local princes or kings or uh, tribal rulers, they'd do that for Rome because they knew that they would be rewarded. Now patronage is a thing that's still at work today, um, sadly. We're meant to be a democracy. Uh, you might know there's a war going on in uh, Ukraine, and Australia elected to spend, send $60 million worth of aid. Um, how did we do that? Well, it turns out that Whitehaven Coal had donated $30,000 to the Liberal Party. And so our aid, our $60 million, doesn't go straight to Ukraine, it goes to Whitehaven Coal. And they're going to send a shipment of coal to Ukraine to help in their war effort. Which makes a lot of sense, sending a ship of coal to one of Europe's largest coal producers. This is patronage. This is the way it works. Um, you look after me, I look after you. Right? Sadly, what's not clear in Australia is who is the patron and uh, who is the client. Um, this was the way Rome worked, and this is the way power generally works in every political system in every country. So it was in Asia that the Roman emperors were first uh, celebrated and worshipped as gods. In fact, the cult of Roma, the goddess of the city of Rome, is thought to actually have originated in the town of Smyrna, right? the first place where a temple to Roma was built. So the cult, the idea of the Roman emperors being gods, originated in the province of Asia. And all of the seven cities that received these letters from John have a temple to Roma or a temple to one of the emperors. So the Roman cult is the background to all of these letters. The pressure that the Christians are feeling is not coming from Rome, 
It's coming from locals who are trying to carry favour and stay in the good books of Rome. And this is much more dangerous. It's not like uh, Judea in these days who had a, um, a cohort stationed in Syria uh, to try and keep the Jews in, uh, in place. Rather, it was the locals who looked after their own turf. Now, why were the Christians um, at risk? Right, the tensions that Jesus addresses in these seven letters implies that this, these small churches were facing persecution because of their faith. Now, this is because if you were to participate in the life of the city, you had to participate in the Roman cult. So there would be feasts and there would be festivals. Um, the commercial guilds would meet at the emperor's temple. And so the, when, when you went to a feast, you're eating food that's been sac sacrificed. So the meat that you buy in the market has been sacrificed to uh, the god. Now, Jewish people were in the fortunate position that because they caused so much trouble, they had been given uh, the status of, uh, the technical term is religio licita, uh, right? A legal religion. So Judaism was legalized and that meant that Jewish people were exempt from anything that was against their religion. So any of these idolatrous practices that marked the whole life of these cities, the Jews could not attend that without being seen as being disloyal. Now, they were uh, suspected of being strange, but generally the Jewish communities in these cities were, were wealthy and contributed to the prosperity of the church, uh, of the city. So local cities, uh, sorry, local citizens who wanted to participate in the life of the city were required to give allegiance, or lip service at least, to the Roman cult, the imperial cult. If you didn't, you were thought to be putting at risk the safety and the well-being, the wealth of the city. Right? So if you have to go to a feast and the priest to Rome gets up and proclaims Caesar as Lord and celebrates him as a son of the gods and praises him for uh, bringing peace and prosperity to the whole world. Can you think of anyone else who makes those claims? Son of God. Prince of Peace. The one who uh, brings salvation to the whole world. The one who we proclaim as Lord, not Caesar, but Jesus. So you'll find in a number of these letters, there's conflict, there's some pretty harsh things said about the Jews, how they're the synagogue of Satan. Right? Really politically incorrect. Right? We couldn't say something like that. Um, Jesus does. And they're meant to be his people. So what's the deal? How come Jesus is saying that the Jewish people are claiming to be Jewish, but they're not? What's that about? 
Right? This chimes in with Paul's teaching that God doesn't have two families. He's only got one family. There's only one covenant. That's the new covenant which fulfills and replaces the old covenant. So it's not that God is keeping the old covenant for Jewish people and the new covenant for everyone else. If you're looking for salvation from God, we get that through Jesus via the new covenant. That's the idea behind this conflict between the Christian churches and the Jews. And the Jews didn't like it. The Jews hated the, the Christian churches by this stage because the Christian churches were mixed communities. Some Jewish believers and a, a bunch of non-Jewish believers. And because the church was originally thought to be a Jewish sect, they were claiming the protection from religio licita. So they were getting the benefits of being mistaken for a Jewish sect. And so what were the Jewish people do, doing? They're dobbing them in. They're saying this guy is not Jewish, but he's claiming to be Jewish so he doesn't have to participate in looking after the well-being, the future of the city. So the repression when it comes is not coming from Rome. Um, older commentaries will tell you that this was probably written in the, um, the, the reign of Domitian, so in the, the mid to late 90s in the, Christian, in the Common Era, um, and that Domitian was a nasty piece of work who really persecuted Christians. Right, that's propaganda written by the emperors who came after him who were from a different dynasty. Almost certainly there was no widespread persecution coming from the emperor against the Christians. What there was, was trouble from the locals. It was your neighbours who were dobbing you in, having you beaten up or thrown in prison, or in one case at least even put to death. Right? These are local disputes um, which started in Asia, then spread elsewhere around the Roman world. And so what does Jesus have to say to the seven churches? The main thrust of the prophecy is, stand firm, don't compromise. Right? Don't give in to the seduction. Don't be seduced by the power, the privilege, the wealth that you get from Rome. Don't give in to the temptation to compromise because that will make your life easier. Don't uh, give in when you actually get beaten up or arrested or your stuff gets confiscated. Stand firm. Stay loyal to Jesus who is the true Lord. We're going to have a look at the verbs um, so this is the next slide, um, that are used for each of the seven churches. So these verbs, just one at a time, these verbs are all from, uh, in the imperative mood, uh, which you know any, any grammar. The imperative is the mood of command. So when we're being told to do something, we're using the imperative mood. All of the verbs 
uh, used by Jesus to address the churches, to tell them what he wants them to do, are imperatives. So Ephesus is told, remember. Right? Remember where you're fo- uh, from where you've fallen. Repent. Do the things that you did at first. Right? It's Smyrna. No criticism, but a warning that trouble's coming. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Be faithful. At Pergamum. Things weren't going well at Pergamum. Therefore repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Sounds good. Thyatira. Hold fast. Right? Hold fast to what you have until I come. Sardis, wake up. Strengthen. Strengthen the things that remain. Right? Keep it. Repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not not know at what hour I will come against you. This is not talking about the parousia, the return of Jesus. This is talking about Jesus coming to his people. At Philadelphia, hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. So coming through is this line of faithfulness in times of trouble or times of seduction. And to the church at Laodicea, be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So you can see that the thrust of the message is, stay faithful to Jesus. Now we're going to zero in on the letter to the Ephesians, which we read. Because I believe that this letter has a lot to say to the Western church um, today. Jesus commends the church for their orthodoxy. How they hold fast to sound teaching. How they didn't get sucked in by the people claiming to be apostles when they're not apostles. How they rejected the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we know nothing about this Nicholas guy. So I've read in a few places that uh, probably he was a Christian teacher who was teaching compromise, saying, look, just go along with the practices, the the idols, the gods, they're not real anyway. So it doesn't matter if you do that, then our lives will be easier. So I've read that in a few different places. But that's a conclusion based on zero data. We simply don't know who Nicholas was or what he was teaching. But whatever it was, Jesus wasn't happy, so I'm glad I'm not Nicholas. Um, But the Ephesians are commended for their right doctrine. And not only that, they're commended for their hard work. Right now, Ephesus 
was the capital city of Asia, and it was one of the great cities of the ancient world. It had a population of about a quarter of a million. And if there was anywhere where Rome's power and seduction was on display, it was in Ephesus. Uh, Paul had a, his longest ministry in any one city, three years, was, was at Ephesus, and he built a great church. Right? It, was the, it was the full bloom of his ministry model, and he planted a church there, which probably planted all of these churches around it. Because he was able to say when he was on his way to Rome to get executed that he had fully preached the gospel throughout this whole area. So it's likely that the church of Ephesus was a church planting centre. And we know that Epaphras, the guy who planted the churches at Hierapolis and Colossae, had come from Ephesus and was a, a, a colleague uh, um, a disciple of Paul. Now at the centre of the city of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. Right? Ar Ar well, Artemis is the Greek uh, name. In Ro the Roman goddess was Diana, the goddess of the hunt, and also the moon goddess because she was the twin sister of Apollo who was the sun god. Uh, children of Zeus in Greek mythology. And within the grounds of the temple um, of Artemis were the temples to Roma and shrines to the Roman emperors so that people would go and burn incense, make sacrifices and offerings to Rome itself or to Roma, the goddess of the city, and to the different emperors. Also in the gardens of the temple was this wonderful old tree which acted as a place of asylum for criminals who could actually get close to it. That's interesting background because when Jesus gives a promise, his promise is that you'll get to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now it's significant that Jesus is introduced as the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. Because Jesus wants to know the struggling little church, the uh, troubled church at Ephesus, that God has them in his hands. Now, the commendation uh, is pretty good, doctrinally sound, morally orthodox. So we're kind of caught by surprise by the strength of the rebuke, their love has grown cold. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore the love that, uh, sorry, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. The church has lost its passion for Jesus, and this condition threatens its existence. Jesus says in a chilling warning, if you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus takes love pretty seriously. 
If you travel to uh, Ephesus today, you'll see many wonders. There's actually a slide there. You can see that marble pillar there that's about 20 metres tall. That's all that remains of this great temple of Diana. Um, and there's ancient Roman ruins all over the place at Ephesus. What you won't find at Ephesus is a Christian church. One of the great centres, one of the great early centres of Christianity today has no Christian presence whatsoever. At the heart of the Christian life should be a burning love for Jesus. A love that's nourished by worship, by prayer, by time in the scriptures and by a life of service to others. We are called to experience God's deep love for us and then out of our experience of his love to give our lives away in service to others. Now John doesn't make it clear in this passage whether he's talking about the, the love of the Ephesians for God or whether he's talking about the love of the Ephesians for one another, which is the thing that was meant to mark the disciples of Jesus. But if you're familiar with the other writings of John, you'll know that it doesn't matter. In John's mind, these two things are entwined. You can't do one without the other. How do we uh, show our love for God? It's in our, our love the pouring out of our lives for others. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus says, I see your tree of refuge in the garden of Demas, and I raise you a tree of life in the paradise of God. He's calling the Ephesian Christians back saying love me or maybe he's saying come and live in my love come and experience my love this has been something that Jesus has been saying to us through our worship this morning and through a couple of the prophetic words a call for us to remember the love that we had at first how do we keep that love alive or if it's grown cold how do we rekindle it it's by seeking to spend time in his presence. It's by spending time alone and together worshipping Jesus. I'm a word guy, so it's spending time in scriptures, letting God speak to me from his word. I'm a ministry guy too, so one of the other things that nourishes uh, and helps me to experience God's love is uh, being in a place where I get to be a, a conduit for God ministering to others through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are the things that we're called to go back to. Remember the works that you did at first. Jesus says, come back. Come back to me. Right, Paul's word this morning, enact. Um, there's an American guy named Doug Erickson who's written a book uh, on the theology of the vineyard. Can't remember its title offhand, but his thesis throughout the book 
is that as a movement, we're called to enacted inaugurated eschatology. That means that we live in the presence of God's future, that we are the ones who belong to the age to come. And because we belong to the age to come, even though we live in this present evil age, we get to enjoy and to give away the benefits of the age to come. But it's not good enough to just have a good theology. We're meant to enact that theology in our lives. We're meant to live this out to one another and to whomever the Holy Spirit might direct our attention to uh, in the rest of our lives. I believe that this morning Jesus is calling us to recommit ourselves and to re re return to our first love. Now, I was going to give you a heads up on this, but I was thinking maybe if we um, had a little bit of Jesus-focused work worship, maybe starting would be the centre, that it might be appropriate for us to just spend some time alone in quiet reflection. And then if we feel that the Holy Spirit is calling us, right? if he's poking at your heart and saying, hey, your passion for Jesus is not what it once was, then maybe just to come and sit or stand or bow in the presence of Jesus and say, Jesus, take me back. Is that okay, Liz? Yeah. I was actually like, trying to write this down. I actually think I have a song that I've been working on that fits what you're saying. Okay. That'll be good too. <laughs> um, just while this sets up, let's pray. Jesus, you know that we have great theology here, that we do our best to handle your word with respect and honour, diligence and care. And some of us certainly feel like we're working damn hard. But we know that what you're looking for most of all is a burning heart, a heart that burns with passion for you. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come to us this morning and to renew our first love. We concede that this is something that's likely to take more than a quarter of an hour, half an hour, a day, a week. But you're calling us back. Help us to remember from where we have fallen. To repent. And to do the works that we once did.
Be the fire.
with your head and as we come up towards the Easter season. If you're not already doing this, I'd encourage you to set some time aside to read the Passion narrative. To think about where you've been in your past with Jesus and to respond to his invitation to remember where, from where we fought to return to our first life. Mm. Come on, Spirit.